in your name I pray, amen. Amen, you can be seated. If, you, if this is your first time, uh, or you haven't been here very often, you might, you might know that uh, I don't typically uh, lead worship here. I did lead worship when I, when I started, uh, the, when we started the church, and uh, there's a good reason why I don't do both now. And so, in any case, I'm, I'm happy to do it. I got to play with my kids, and uh, Tara, who's on stage right here, she, uh, she was in the college ministry days uh, with me, along with her husband, Gray, um, who was her boyfriend at the time. Um, and so that was kind of nostalgic a little bit and, and fun. So I'm glad that you're here, and thanks for coming this morning. We've been talking over the last several weeks um, just about languishing, and I feel like the Lord has something here in this passage for us. The Lord has something for our church, that like specifically for us, and obviously it is generally for the church and for all different churches and people and, and, and so forth, but like this passage in, in, in particular is for our church and, and uh, myself and the elders, the other preaching elders have just had this sense of just like, Man, the Lord just laying this passage on our hearts um, in order to drive us uh, towards something and away from something else. And, and really, let me just repeat some of the things that I've said because I, uh, it, it sounds like people come to church between one and two times a month now. And so uh, you'll forgive me for repeating it because maybe you didn't hear it the last couple of weeks. And so... Um, I was reading an article in the New York Times and it, and it basically said the, the blah you're feeling is actually called languishing. And what that means is that like you're just are kind of halfway in between um, you know, happiness and depression. And it's this really sad state that many people find themselves in. And then another article was written um, on the back of that article this year. That was last year and then this one is this year. And, and the original article said like, uh, what you need to do is you need to get into the flow, and the flow, the way that you get into the flow to get out of languishing, to get out of this kind of middle ground of just like, I'm not excited, but I'm not depressed, or I'm just kind of in between. The way that you do that is you do a word game or a late night Netflix binge, and that's, and that's how you can overcome the blahs. And what we've been talking about the last few weeks is that like the, the name for the blahs is, is, really, uh, is really our hearts have been directed not towards Jesus, not toward God, not toward what he has for us, but we've become rich, literally rich. Like we, we have lots of money. The government's been handing us money. Maybe we've been successful in other ways. We are the richest country in the world, apparently, or at least we were a few years ago. China's probably on our tail here very quickly, but, uh, but we're rich and we have all we need. When we have everything that we need, it's just like everything is fine. And like, I, it's, it's, it's really hard to, to desire God. It's really hard to, to want him. It's really hard to like pursue him because you don't have any needs. It's really hard to go after him. And part of what's going on in our world as we think about this languishing, is just kind of why is everyone languishing? Well, we've kind of fulfilled ourselves with our own needs, or we think that we did, or we thought we did. And then something came to a close, and that was like, 
we kind of came to this point where I think, I wonder if it's not, like everybody had a lot of time to be by themselves during COVID. Everyone had a lot of time to stop and think. And it was just long enough that people were able to go, you know, my life choices have, re have really not led me towards the happiness that I thought I was gonna get. My life choices, the things that I bought and the places that I went and the job that I got and the promotion that I took and the person that I married, it, it, it just didn't really take me to the place that I thought it would take me. It didn't take me to this place of happiness. It took me to this place of languishing. And so all of this is coming to a close. Mark Sayers, uh, in his most recent podcast on Rebuilders, talks about four competing moral visions that are really active and present in the world. There's probably more, but these are kind of four general moral visions that people have. And the, the four moral visions are, uh, the first one is hedonism. Hedonism is, or hedonistic, um, lifestyle is, is really just the, the search for pleasure, really at any cost. I'll pay anything, I'll do whatever just to have pleasure. That's my goal in life, that's what I'm, that's what I'm going to do. That's, that's what it's about. Think of the 60s, like free love, uh, all of that kind of stuff. And then that kind of got baked in, Mark Sayer says, to, to our culture, that like pleasure seeking at all cost is, is, is one moral vision. And the, and the way towards, towards heaven is just like have more pleasure. The way towards the, to making the world great is to have more pleasure. And then he talks about uh, the moralistic uh, moral vision. Moralistic meaning uh, to do good. But the world's vision of doing good, the world's vision of doing good is touted everywhere today. It's, uh, it's, it has to do with racism, which by the way, I'm not, we're not pro-racism here, by the way, we're anti-racism, but it's anything even close to racism. It's saying the right words at the right place at the right time. It's sexism, don't do that. It's, it's, it's either pro-mask or anti-mask, it's pro-vax or anti-vax, or, or anti-vax. It's, it's doing good, it's, it is, now we have moral police that are like, ha, you said that, or you did this one time when you were in high school. And then there's the therapeutic, which is like everything must be about creating peace for me. Like the government's job is to create peace for me. And, and if you threaten my peace, if you threaten my well-being, if I don't have a safe space to be, or if you say something in your sermon that upsets me, then there, there's big problems. So everybody just needs to bring me peace. That's the therapeutic moral vision. But then there was the nihilistic moral vision, which is everything's broken and corrupt and it just stinks. Why not just escape? Just go, go into my bedroom and play video games, escape, go, go escape and go uh, binge on Netflix, escape into some kind of an affair or more money, whatever. And if you remember a few weeks back when I started this series, I talked about how you have these, uh, these mass shooters that are people that are just kind of like, they're done. They, they've reached the, the pinnacle of nihilism or nihilism, however you say it. They've reached the pinnacle of that where they just go, I just give up. And then I, I think I read you some articles that basically said what they're experiencing is an extreme sense of what many of us are experiencing. 
what they are experiencing is an extreme sense of what we're experiencing in languishing. If you are languishing, if you are in this place where you're like, I'm not happy, but I'm not sad, I'm just kind of like in this blah moment, what they're, what they're doing. And so we have all of these moral visions that have, that have made promises. And the promises were, if you say the right thing, if you seek pleasure at all costs, if you uh, make sure you, uh, you have experienced peace and, and demand that the government do that for you and all of your friends and all of your people, if you do these things, then everything will be fine. And then we got to this place where we just go, wait a minute, it's not working. It's not working for me. It's no longer doing it. It's no longer making it happen. And I, I, I think I've been spending a lot of time in my, in my sermons just trying to convince you of something. And what, I, what I'm trying to convince you of is that like this passage of script, scripture is, is the answer, and not just this passage, the entire Bible, but this is revealing. It is opening our eyes to something. And that is that all of these other hopes all of these other moral visions that are competing, which is why we have all the infighting and everything, because this vision is clashing with this vision, and everyone's finally just like, man, everything stinks. But what this passage brings you is a new moral vision. It brings us a new moral vision. And the Apostle Paul says this. He says, I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 17, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I just, I just want you to know, I want you to have this spiritual sense. And church, here's what's been happening. We have a worldly sense, and we try to stamp God on that. We have a worldly sense and, we, and, and a, a worldly moral vision. And maybe it's one of these. Maybe it's an amalgamation of those things that we've been trying to say like, okay, I've got this moral vision and then I tack God onto that. And I, I'm not even saying you're alone. I feel like I'm in that. I feel like I'm in that place where it's just like, I, just, I, I, I keep kind of forgetting. Oh yeah, that's a moral vision that doesn't belong with me. And how do I know this? Because people don't care about being in community, Christian community anymore. People often don't give either to the church or to other people. Uh, people uh, tend to just be disconnected in general. And it's, we've become further and further into our individualism and we're at this place where it's just like, man, God, what do you have for us? We need a spiritual revelation in the knowledge of him and we need in that to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened that we would know what is the hope to which he has called us. That we would know what is the hope. And that's the first what, and I've said this a couple of times, but there's three what's in this, in this, in this new moral vision that has nothing to do with a worldly vision other than to say that it corrects each one of these. This moral vision with the three what's, what is the hope, 
what is the riches of his inheritance in the saints, and then what is the power? This is a new moral vision that if we could have our eyes opened, that we could see this. And, I, and I, I've just, I, I mean, I've just given you in the first 12 minutes of this sermon, I've, I've probably repeated that every single week. And there's a reason behind it. The reason behind it is, I feel like this is where God has us right now. I feel like it is. And it's as if the Apostle Paul is saying, if you only knew. I mean, just think about that for a second. If you only knew. If you only knew what is available to you. If you only knew why we have such immense hope. If you only knew the power that is possible. If you only knew what was there, what was under the hood. If you only knew the source that is already there. It's not like, I'm not asking God, hey God, give me power. It's God is saying, I gave you power. I gave you hope. I gave you an inheritance, and you are my inheritance. I, like, this is the hope. Listen to me. Listen to me. All of these other worldly visions fail because ultimately they come down to saying, you need to make this happen. And then we come to the end of ourselves and we go, I'm not making it happen. The Republican Party isn't making it happen. The Democrat Party isn't making it happen. Uh, my, my school, my friends, even my church isn't making it happen. And so what do I need? Well, you need the riches. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And so let me just ask the question. What are the riches of his inglorious, his glorious, not inglorious, his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is that? What does that even mean? There's two possibilities. One of them is, is that either, is this God's inheritance? Is God getting riches? Or are we the one getting riches? And commentators are split on this. Uh, Spurge, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, he says it's God's inheritance, and then he spends a little bit of time on, uh, and on our inheritance. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it's, it's, it's our inheritance that we get. And so they're split. I think what's important today is that I really want to emphasize that God gets an inheritance. God gets something here. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What does that even mean? Look at this. He owns everything. Psalm 50, verse 10. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God owns everything. He is the owner of all things. He's the creator, sustainer, designer. He is the one. He owns it. All other moral visions don't work. He is the owner of all things. And so, so likewise, he owns you. He owns everyone. But he owns his people in a special way. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32.9 
But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He, he calls his people his portion. God says, my people are what I get. Can, can, can you even fathom that for a second? Like, like, like I am his inheritance? How is that even possible? How, how do I become God's inheritance? What, is that, what does that even mean? Other than to say this, it must mean something really incredible. If my creator says, I got you, I got you. Remember what Paul says? I just want you to know, if you only knew, if you only knew how rich God feels when he looks at you. Not because, here's something fantastic, not even because you have the potential for good because you don't. We only have the potential for evil. Sure, we can do good things here and there, but not to ultimately glorify him. All other systems, all other moral visions fail us. But God is the one who says that we are his inheritance. Let me prove it to you more. First Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You are possessed. I know that sounds weird. <laughs> you are possessed. No. You are possessed by God. He owns you. He has you. He has you in his grip. He, is a, he, he owns your life. And you are his possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies who called, uh, of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You are possessed by him, but you're possessed by him for a purpose. See, here's the thing. As long as you take a moral vision or some type of worldly moral vision and you say, I'm going to tack God onto each one of these points. And I'm going to say, in God, in God, in God, or say, add Jesus to each one of those. That, that doesn't work. What this is saying here is it's, it, it's saying this. If you only knew how rich God feels when he looks at you, when he, that you are his prized possession, that he loves you that much, the hope to which he's called you is this. I own you. And as a result, when you get that, if you only knew, you might have the opportunity to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now, let me just ask you this. Are you and I proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness? Is there any discernible difference between us and someone else. And let me just tell you, the Apostle Paul doesn't say, hey, do these things and that will happen. Like stop, stop being rude and stop uh, being selfish and stop being all of these. No, that, I mean, that is true, we should do that. But what the motivating factor is, is this, that we are a people of his own possession. He owns us. And Paul says, I just want you to think about it. I just want you to think about it. 
Let me ask you something. When's the last time you thought about it? Paul says, I want to give you three things. The hope, the riches of his inheritance in the saints, and the power. I'm going to give you those three things. Those three things are what I want you to know. And I just want to ask you, and I want to ask myself, have we spent any time contemplating that? Man, God owns me. He owns me. As, as broken down as I am, as broken as I seem to be all the time, he owns me. And how did he get me? 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Like the glorification of God, like walking around glorifying God and the way that we act and our presence in our work or in our families or those kinds of things, like that, that kind of, of presence is driven by the fact that like I am not my own. I don't own me. I do not own a moral vision. God has a moral vision for me. And the only thing that's lacking in my life is an understanding of how much hope I have, of the, the riches that he has bestowed on me and that he has in me, and the power. Like, that's, that's what it is. I'm not my own. I was bought with a price. And here's the thing. He has no buyer's remorse. He does not sit and go, man, I shouldn't have bought that person because they're still struggling in ways that like everybody else doesn't seem to struggle. They struggle in that way. I should have made a different purchase. God does not have buyer's remorse. When he looks at you, you are his prized possession. Do you see the hope in that? Do you see the hope? I'm not working for someone's love. I'm not working for someone's acceptance. I'm not working for anything. The only thing I'm working for is I'm working, is I'm working to understand, man, he bought me with a price and he ain't gonna return me. There are no returns and there are no exchanges. The terrible store to shop at, right? Don't you hate that when you walk in? No returns, no exchanges. Ah, never mind. You know, like, like I'll go somewhere else. I can already see the attitude that I'm gonna get. Except God. I'm not returning you. I'm not exchanging you for a better fit. You are my prized possession. Warts, addictions, problems, whatever you, relational issues, social issues, bad hygiene, good hygiene. Introvert, extrovert. See, when God loves you, you become more lovable. I bought a house one time that was baby blue. It was hideous. Just hideous. I looked at it and I was like, this thing is so bad. I'm not, I'm not going to make an offer. And so this is like in 2009. And my wife and I walked away from it and I was like, 
yeah, I'm not paying what they're offering or what they're asking. And I just, we walked away. And then the real estate agent calls us like a day later and says, calls our agent and says, hey, uh, tell them to make an offer because no one else is looking at this. And I'm like, oh, dang, that's a great way to buy a house, right? <laughs> okay, here's my number, right? And write it down, way, a lot lower than what it was. But I, I took that house and I loved it. I talk about my grass all the time, but the grass was terrible when I got there. And I love that grass. I loved it. The, the house was hideous and the color was hideous and we painted it. And the hedges weren't trimmed very well. And there's a grapevine in the back that was going all over the place. And it was just kind of a mess and we cleaned it up and we loved it. And we took care of it and we put money into it. And we, we loved that house and it became more lovable. And now my house is worth more because of that. When you love something like that, it becomes more lovable. You become more lovable when you experience the love of God, when you just know about it. Like, isn't, isn't that like an, an amazing point? Not, not my point. But isn't it just amazing that like, I just, I just keep screwing up and he just keeps loving me. I'm his prized possession. Spurgeon says, when God looks at his creation, he sees nothing that has cost him suffering and death till he comes to his people. Jesus knows that the saints cost him. He estimates them at the usual rate among men, for men say, the price is what it will fetch. What's it worth? It's, it's worth what, everyone, what someone will pay. And Jesus knows what his people fetched when he redeemed them by giving himself for them. Measured by that standard, God hath indeed riches of glory in his inheritance in the saints. Do you see what God paid for you? He paid everything. He, he gave his son. And the, the, question, the question that we have to ask is like, he is willing to give up everything for me. And, and when he looks at me, something happens. Like, look at Hebrews 12, 2. That it says that we should look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Like, not only did he give everything, but when he, when he did it, as he was going to the cross, he's saying, I'm gonna get him. I'm gonna get her. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get that person. That's, I'm, I'm going to get that. Yes, it is about the glory of glorifying God. Uh, uh, God the Father and, and Jesus himself getting glory in and through this. His glory comes through saving the saints who for the joy that was set before him. When God looks at you, he is joyful over you. He, he joyfully went to the cross, suffered and died for your sake. What wouldn't he give up? He gave up everything. He already gave it. There's nothing more to give. He gave everything for you. 
Now there's an inheritance that we receive, which I think is just, is replete throughout the New Testament. We can look at chapter one, verses three through uh, 14, which I will in just a second. But we've got God's inheritance, God's riches that he gets. He, he loves us, he's joyful over us, all of that stuff. But then what do we receive? We only have to look at the first verse of, of his beginning sentence in, in the uh, uh, first chapter, verse three. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Like there, there is an, an inheritance. Like he's done this in the past and it's not just the past, it's the present and then it's the future. Like what does he have in store for you? See these moral visions that come from our world all have like, man, if everyone would stop being mean, if everyone would get out of my way and allow me to have pleasure, if everyone would just, just, just start being peaceful, if everyone would just uh, you know, stop screwing everything up, then everything would be fine. The moral vision that God has for you is rooted in this hope and in the riches and in the power. But it comes to life in this inheritance of like, this is what you get. You get God. I think it's Francis Chan a few years ago that wrote a book and says, what, or maybe it was a sermon, I can't remember. He said, what do you get for following Jesus? You get Jesus. And the sad fact is, is that there's so many Christians who say, oh good, I got Jesus. So I got that going for me. Now, how do I get everything else? Tell me how to follow you better, God, so that you can make me more successful. <clears throat> and this moral vision leads to something else that is far better. 1 Corinthians 2.9. <clears throat> but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Just, just contemplate that for a second. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. God thinks really highly of what he's preparing for you. Have you contemplated it? Have you spent time on it? I told the staff I would only be 20 minutes. I'm at 30. I'm gonna skip to the end here. How do you apply this? Because I can leave you with, like know the gospel. I can leave you with, just be at church more often. I can leave you with all of those things and like read your Bible, pray, go to church and be nice to people, that kind of thing. And that isn't, I'm not saying those things are bad, it's just like sometimes people need more. And what, what I wanna propose to you is that the presence of God in our lives is what we need. And it feels elusive on some level, but it's, but it's, a, it's a real thing, it's the presence of God. And the presence of God comes through a, a mindfulness of this, that like, I have this God, and he says, 
if I only knew what he has for me, then that, like that everything could, pos- could possibly change in my life. I, I, I have this. And so what we're doing is, is we're walking forward in faith and we're saying like, God, I want to follow your moral vision for my life. I want to follow your moral vision for our church. I want to follow your moral vision for my family. I, I, I want to be about that. I don't want to be about hedonism or pleasure. I don't want to be about just this therapeutic or whatever, uh, all, all of those things. I want to be about you. And so we want to seek the presence of God. It's this idea of abiding in Christ. It's, it's, it's coming back to the vine. I am the vine. You are the branches, Jesus says. It's coming back to the vine. Remember that grape vine I told you about in the back of my, my house? Like, it, I went over there the other day, and there's vines, like, growing up into the tree. Like, they were huge. Or, I'm sorry, they're branches in, in the biblical explanation. They're way up into this tree, and I had to cut them all off, and like a day later, they were wilted and gone. I am the vine, you are the branches. That, that we must get the sap, we must get the nutrients of God in abiding in him. And the question is, is, is whether we even have the time or the space or anything to actually be seeking after him. I, I, here's the thing. Are we disciples of Jesus Christ? Or are we just people that attend church? Have, are we experiencing the presence of God? There, there is a lack of discipleship in the local church. That's us. That's me. Like, there's, like, are we reaching for the sap of Jesus and allowing that to, to fill our lives? What are we plugging into? Where are we getting our flow from? And I, and I, I just want to tell you that w- we are distracted. I mean, I think this is almost cliche at this point, but like between our phones and the streaming services and all this stuff, like I don't know that we have time to actually sit and think. I have felt like this in the last uh, couple of months where it's just like, I feel like I do not have time or space to think about God. I don't feel like I've had a spiritual thought even though I have to give a sermon every Sunday. And it's like, man, I've had to be really intentional recently. And even at that, it's just like, I still feel a little um, out of sorts. And it's, it's like, man, God is calling me to a greater sense of discipleship. A greater sense of, God, I want your presence in my life. I want your presence. I just want you with me. I want to know the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints. I want to know what is the power that you have available to me that's already there. I want to know. And a long time ago, there was a counselor that I had gone to see and he talked about a thing called mindfulness. And it's from a book, and it's a secular thing. It's probably new age and satanic, but uh, I'll, uh, I'll share it with you. <laughs> because I think it's helpful. I don't think it's satanic. Um, he actually, never mind. I, I won't go into that. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm totally losing my mind here. Mindfulness is, the, is thinking about what you're thinking about. Have you thought about what you're thinking about? Does that sound stupid? So 
I have to get up earlier than anybody else in order for me to just have time to be able to think. I don't know what happens. I, I, it's like if my phone rings, if I know that other people are awake, something like that, it's just like that has been the best time that I've had recently. My wife and I were, and our kids were in Bend. Uh, we both got up, went to separate rooms a, a couple few times, and, and uh, you know, just, I just sat there just kind of studying the Word, getting ready for this sermon, yes, as well. But I had time to sit there and think about what I'm thinking about. What's stressing me out? What am I hoping for? What's my vision for my kids? How are my kids? Praying for my kids, praying for my wife. God, what do you want to say to me? What are you trying to say? Do we have time like that? If you don't have time like that, you cannot, you cannot experience the presence of God in, in a way, in a meaningful way. I'm not saying that God won't meet you in the middle of, of chaos and stress. He will do that. But I just want to say that seeking for the presence of God, us becoming disciples of Jesus Christ in a, a, a really uh, distinct way is dependent upon us getting time to think about what we're thinking about, saying, and pulling apart our heart and just saying, what is my vision for my life? I, I, I'm... I'm I'm not talking as loud today. I'm talking slowly. I'm talking quietly. And the reason is, is because I just, I just want to ask you, like, are you processing? What are, what are you hoping for? What do you want? What is motivating you? What are the, what are the desires of your heart? I'm, the scriptures say, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Am I seeking after God? Do I have any desire for him? So it's, it's mindfulness. It's, it is going to a desolate place as Jesus did. Because when you're in a desolate place, it's like everything gets shut off. And the desolate place has got to be in a quiet place with the phone off or just silenced or whatever, just out of your view and just sit and think. And the way to begin your thoughts on that is to just read the word of God. How should I pray? What, what should I be praying about? You know, the Psalms are fantastic. I delight to do your will. Psalm 40, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my, my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness. How do I pray? How do I talk to God? I just, I just like opened my Bible. I didn't plan to talk to you about that. What did that just tell me? It's, it's, it's directing my heart to say, your law is in my heart. I want it there. God, I long for it. I want it. And it, it's, it's praying the Psalms. It's, it's talking to him. I've been reading in Hebrews lately. And the like, Hebrews like four, five, six through 10 in there. And I'm just kind of like, it's just like churning things up in me. It's just churning things up where I'm just going, man, it's been a while since I've read the book of Hebrews. And so I was just like, man, it's just like, it, I kind of sometimes go to the word thinking like, man, 
I always read the Bible. (laughs) It's my job. It's, I have to do it. Like, but I, and so I'm like, am I going to get anything out of this? Cause I'm not doing a sermon. You know how hard that is? Like I don't have a sermon to prepare, prepare for it. So now I just have to read the Bible for me or something. Sorry. I'm sharing a lot here, uh, oversharing TMI. Uh, um, but it's just like, God just works. He just works in that. I just want to leave you with that. He's going to renew your mind. He's going to replace the worldly vision that you have with his vision. He's going to show you that he wants you to have pleasure in him. He's going to show you that he wants you to do good according to his word, not according to the worldly vision of that. He wants you to have peace. He wants you to have hope instead of nihilism and so can we go to the Lord's table and